And we're back for another episode of Freewheeling Podcast. I'm Abby Mickey, and I am joined once again by Lauren Rowney. Lauren, how's it going? It's going good. It's been a while, I feel. How's your... It's it's full, fully summer now. It's now a week past the summer solstice. So, how's your summer so far? Summer is actually good. We had a heat wave in Belgium, which means um, 30 degrees, which doesn't sound that hot to say in Australian, but I swear 30 degrees in Belgium sometimes feels like 38 degrees in Australia. I don't know why, but um, we've had amazing weather. It reminds me a little bit sometimes of Gold Coast weather, if there are any Australian listeners when it's summer here. Um, But now there's quite a bit of wind, which is quite typical of Belgium. Um, But yeah, summer's going good so far and looking forward to what the rest of the summer holds for cycling. (laughs) Interestingly and completely off topic, I was reading this article the other day that was that popped up in like some weird I was reading something online about, I don't know, politics. And one of the like columns on the side that has a bunch of pop-ups, uh, ad pop-ups had an article about the worst to best European countries and it ranked all the European countries worst to best. And Belgium for for visitors, like for tourists to go to, and Belgium was ranked like fourth. As the worst or the best? As the best. Like fourth best. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I um, also thought it was interesting. <laughs> well, I definitely wouldn't come here to go to the beach. I will say that. But that is just coming from someone who has been lucky enough to live yeah, along some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. So I'm pretty judgy when it comes to beaches. But in terms of culture... Um, yeah, we have some beautiful cities here in Belgium. I live just outside of Bruges and even though I go there a lot, it's still very charming, um, to me and, and beautiful. And I guess actually I have to admit, I'm doing this thing this summer where my partner and I have pretty much decided we're not going to travel abroad and just explore our own backyard. So the past few weekends we've been going more to the French side of the country, so the Ardennen. And it's gorgeous there. It feels like you're really in another country. So, um, yeah, Flanders, where I live, is very different to other parts of Belgium. And Belgium is quite a beautiful country when you begin to look under the surface of the farmlands. <laughs> when we, when I was racing on United Healthcare, we rented like a castle in the middle of nowhere, Belgium, and it was a weird, weird time living in that castle with no hot water in February. But the riding around there was incredible because we were about, I don't know, 40 minutes from the Mure de Wee. Mm-hmm. And everything in that valley was just so cool. Like I would just, I remember just like leaving for like six hours every day, go up and down the valley. And it was just beautiful. Well, that area like Dinant is one of the most beautiful towns in Belgium. And that's not too far from... Um, Hui and yeah it's it's actually really nice and you know now that I've settled in Belgium I'm coming to appreciate the place I live in and I think actually uh, people need to explore their own backyards a bit more and um, we won't go into the climate change thing but yeah obviously flying around the globe isn't the best thing for the environment so I think if you can try to stay more local and appreciate what you have in your home country it's it's a good thing, not only for the economy, but the environment. Yes, I agree. And that kind of shifts us into our first 
topic of conversation, which is the potential ban on Americans flying over to Europe. So that means that, let's see, we got Katie Hall, Corinne Rivera, Ruth Winder, and Taylor Wiles, and Leah Thomas are all over in the United States right now. And they're all some of the best riders in the peloton. So that could mean some interesting things ahead. So you were actually quite lucky, Abby, getting out when you did. Yeah, super lucky. So there's a lot of question marks about if the Americans are going to be able to make it over for the race season, which will be really interesting. If the Americans can't race their bikes this year, that'll be a bummer. And just to, to yeah, continue on this path of the conversation, um, yeah, living here in Belgium, there's actually a cycling host house called the Chainstay, which people might be I've very familiar there. with. Yeah. Um, really nice guy that runs it. And I just saw that he posted on Facebook that he was like basically saying, Americans get your shit together because if America, uh, Americans can't travel to Europe, that basically makes up, I think 90% of his clientele and thus, you know, he's really suffering after all these months. I mean, yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but right now it's not looking so good. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that'll be kind of something to keep an eye on. And the EU is going to chain, they're going to reassess every two weeks. So it's possible that come September, the Americans will be able to make it over. If, if that happens, that'd be amazing. Um, but the, the bright side of this is that it looks like we're getting super close to being able to have racing. Yeah, I mean, like, um, I don't know how it feels for you in Spain, but I feel like Corona, I mean, mouth, mouth masks aside, it feels almost, and this might sound like a bad thing, like it didn't happen. Mm. And maybe that is a bad thing because people are becoming more relaxed. Like here in Belgium, it was very strict when they first opened the shops, like, the, the streets uh, in the city of Bruges, for example, were closed off to cars and they made it basically that you could only walk up the street one way and down the other. So they were directing traffic and it was very strict with people lining up before they could go in a shop. But now it seems like it's just a bit normal again. Yeah, it's the same here in Spain, actually. Um, from my side of things, based on what I'm seeing, particularly with like, uh, the recreational riding here, I think as of, yeah, July 1st, you can start riding in groups of 50 by July 15, then organized events of a hundred or 200. Um, so it's, it's all becoming possible. And actually the Kermesse racing scene is starting again here in Belgium. That's great. And I mean, we did actually have a bike race over the weekend. The, yes. There was the Slovenian National Championships happened over the weekend. Won by, I'm so sorry to who, to this name, Erska Pintar. From, yeah, you didn't do so bad. Yes. It's just a force of habit that I'm going to say it wrong. Ale BTC Ljubljana. So there you go. First race of the summer. I keep so, forgetting that we had bike racing already this year. It feels so long I know. ago. It was so long ago, though. February. <laughs> yeah, February. Start of March. Yeah. Yes, because we had Drenta. Wait. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. It's just too long ago. I can't. No, Drenta was canceled. 
Drunter was canceled. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of the Om Loops. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we had a bike race. So things are, I'm not going to say like there's definitely going to be bike racing this year, but things are looking a little bit brighter. How do you think this will impact Zwift in a way? I mean, no, Zwift is always going to do well, of course, but the it seems that the past months everyone, well, people who weren't into Zwift and we, you know, not so keen on the idea have gotten heavily into Zwift, uh, people actually paying attention to the racing. Do you think that there'll be a shift of focus back to real life racing again? I think for sure. I think that there's always going to be a niche for the Zwift racing and especially for the people who are actually racing it. The, I mean, we, you and I have talked about it before, like it's an addictive thing riding Zwift and the races are hard, but you're doing them in the comfort of your own home. So there's like a really special place for Zwift racing. So I think as far as the actual racing of it, then I think that doesn't have anything to worry about. As far as watching the races live, I I don't really think that that is going to continue to be popular just because it's not as exciting to watch. It's not as it's not as unpredictable in a way and also one of the best parts about watching bike racing is the scenery. Couldn't agree and more. The, and the suffer faces. And yeah. the Swift riders all have the same face and they all have the same body and it's just a little <laughs> bit weird. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the like the only person who's any different on Swift from everyone else is Sarah Gigante when she wears the weird paperboy hat. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that girl is addicted to Swift, speaking of. She's real good at Swift. She's like really, really good. I mean, there was um the virtual Joe Martin, which is a UCI stage race in the United States, happened last week, maybe, or the week before. And um, Chloe Dygart, the world champion for TT, placed like 26th. And Sarah Gigante won for the time trial, the opening time trial, which is just, wow. <laughs> well, I guess it kind of says, <laughs> it says a lot about Zwift and also how people have been spending their times during covid also yeah yeah but that's interesting i know she was waking up i saw one instagram at 2 a.m or something to do Ooh. the race Yikes. um that's commitment to the cause that is that is an addiction to zwift racing if i've ever heard one in yeah. in a good way in a good way no no judgment here <laughs> in other news Amy Cure actually has retired as of June 20th. She was already pre-selected to go to Tokyo for the track and decided to call it early, which I think was a really interesting move just because when you've been focused on something for so long and then all of a sudden it's like, nope, you've got one more year. For some people, that can be just... An eternity. Yeah, it's very debilitating to be like, I've worked for you know, maybe it's three years, maybe it's eight, however many years to get to this point. And now one more year is the breaking point. And in her retirement announcement, she sounded really optimistic about the future and excited for what's to come next. Um, but I wanted to give her a shout out because she has an incredible career and making that decision to retire 
one year before the Olympics, having thought that the Olympics would have been her last year is a really, really strong move. Well, this comes back to the conversation I had with Nettie the first week of April when um, they just announced that the Olympics had been postponed a year. And Nettie was, is actually one of the senior riders on the team. Um, she's just a little bit older than Amy, I believe, or maybe the same age. And she had said that that was meant to be her last race. And she was just going to take it basically week by week to see how she went um, through these times because it's difficult. She, you know, Amy, if you look at one of the pictures she posted uh, maybe a week ago, she's been riding since she was like 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, she's getting close to 30 now. That's a lifetime in a sport and she's been to multiple Olympic Games already. So I can... I can see how one year could seem like a lifetime. And, you know, I know that she has a beautiful relationship with someone in Australia and maybe the time just being at home, the most amount of time she's ever spent has just made her realize that I'm sorry, but there's more to life than, than racing bikes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's something that I think this time in the sport where there's not been any racing and, a lot of people are at home for the longest time they've ever been at home. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out with racing in the future. And if more riders decide to call it before next year's Olympics that had targeted the Olympics previously, just because it's like I've been at home with my loved ones and I forgot what this felt like or I never knew what this felt like and I I want this and and cycling just doesn't it's not a single singularly focused mindset anymore exactly I mean it's it's a difficult call to make but um yeah kudos Amy she had a fantastic career multiple world champion uh represented Australia in two Olympic games and um is just a really great person yeah so. yeah um a little bit more interesting news before we have good news Mitchelton Scott. <laughs> uh, can we talk about this? Because I'm so confused. Yeah, I think everybody feels that way. And, like, they're just such a well-organized and run team um, who communicate very well usually. So I don't understand where this lack in communication is. And secondly, the sponsorship thing. I, I don't understand how a charity can throw $30 million um, of charity dollars at a cycling team. I'm sorry. I love the sport of cycling, but how does that work? The whole thing is really weird, and we've talked about it on the regular weekly podcast, but obviously this also affects women's cycling because Mitchelton Scott has Annemiek Van Vluten on their team. So she's arguably the best female cyclist we've got right now, or at least the craziest, and... And if the team does fold or if there's all this uncertainty right now, where will she go? Like what team I, will she go to? The, yeah, I know Anamique loves that team. Um, she would never want to leave. And the only reason she would is if the team didn't go ahead. But I feel like, you know, it's an institution in Australia now and I can't see Jerry Ryan 
letting that happen, even if it means he has to shell out money for another year. And it seems like he's actually been doing that for the past few years. I know even when I was on the team, they were looking for a big sponsor um, to finally, you know, take the pressure off him because, yeah, it's a lot of money to run a men's and women's professional cycling team. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, again, I don't see how this actually fit with the team as a sponsor Um, anyway to begin with. It was bizarre for me. Um, And, yeah, I I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just optimistic, but I I can't see this team going away. Yeah, and – there's been rumblings in the past about the team being in trouble and um, wanting to find new sponsors. And that's a pretty normal thing in cycling. I think if you've been in the sport of cycling and you hear, oh, a team might be going away, it's kind of like, well, shoot. But it's there was never any shock involved. No, no, sh- not shock, but more like uh, it's happening again. Who who's going to step up to the plate and actually take over the sponsorship. But, um, yeah, Jerry has done an amazing thing for Australian cycling and this team. And I really hope something comes through and I have no doubt they've been working really hard and working on something. Um, but that is the biggest question when it comes to women's cycling is, um, where would she go actually? Yeah. Where does the biggest star in, women's cycling as far as I'm concerned at the moment that would be Anna Meek yeah I agree I mean she won worlds like completely demolished worlds last year yeah not and to mention the all the other exactly all yeah. the other performances um she's just uh, I don't even know how to describe her. On another level. Uh, she's on another level. She is one of a kind athlete that mm-hmm. we've been lucky to have raced against and have known. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, in the same kind of realm of conversation, Big La Katusha, which was also in a little bit of trouble, both of their title sponsors having been like, yo, we're not doing this anymore, um, over the, the coronavirus pandemic, Paul Ka, which is a clothing brand in France, has stepped in to save the team. And not just for this year, but also for three years, four more years. It's an amount of... I don't think there are many, many teams that get that sort of commitment. No, not at all. I mean, we know that SD Works has stepped in for a long-term commitment to Bowles Dolmans. But Big La Katusha has been various forms of itself basically year to year. So yeah. for them to have one one title sponsor for multiple years in a row is, I mean, Big La has been with the team for a while, but it's gone from Big La Cervello to just Big La to Big La Katusha. It's been changing over a long, over basically every year that it's been alive. So... Mm. It's really cool to see a company come in and save the team, outright save the team for multiple years. Yeah, I'm curious as to how this sponsorship came about, what the the connection is there. It's a really nice team and having spoken to Laura Fletcher from the Peloton Brief who did some work with them, she just was in love with the girls. So yeah, yeah I was so sad to see that the team might go away, but this is um, really great news, um, particularly for women cycling, considering all the uncertainty with other teams. Yes, for sure. Given like the the 
situation that we're in right now in the world and how everything has like a huge question mark over it having any kind of certainty is amazing and sd works also has shown that they have security in that they signed jolene dehore and uh christine mayarus among other riders plus new riders for long periods of time so they they've also shown that they have some kind of team security which is great yeah, and FDJ I saw have signed on riders for another two years as well. So oh, they've again, been signing riders like crazy. Yeah, which is good because it means that they're sure they're going to have sponsorship and they want to continue to ve- to develop. So for women's cycling, it's a big thumbs up. I could see Annemiek van Vluten going to FDJ. She could fit in there. It's a really yeah. nice team too. I think it's developed into a very nice team. Yeah, I've heard... Um, Nothing but good things about the atmosphere on that team and the courage of all the girls that are riding on the team. And on a side note, Shara Gillow's cooking from that team. I don't know if you follow her on Instagram, but this is a random shout out, but she is amazing. Awesome. Start following her on Instagram with her foodie um, ventures. She's really made good time of this COVID-19. <laughs> so has uh, so has Lauren Kitchen. Lauren Kitchen, also on FDJ and an Australian, she started a mentoring program where she chose two uh, younger girls in cycling to mentor and help get to where they want to go, which is really, really cool. I saw that initiative, and um, I know of another rider on Tipco. I won't say it now, but she reached out to me a while ago too to ask some tips on to how to mentor and she wanted to start up a business. So I think it's really great to see that from, from these riders that have so much experience and Lauren staying in the sport for another few years. And she has been around the block. She's been on some of the biggest teams, um, represented Australia at the highest level and is a very smart cookie. Yes. And is just such a great person. Yeah, she is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a really big fan of her so our final bit of news and the news that'll tie us into the interview that i have for today's episode is that ccc live has signed lars boom the ex uh dutch male professional cyclist to be their performance director for the remainder of this season question mark about the future as well but definitely for this year um mostly with an eye on the Paris-Roubaix that is supposed to happen. I think Lars and Marion are going to be a really good team. Yeah, seriously. Um, yeah, that was big news. And I guess it says something about the future of the sport too, right? Yeah, um, definitely. For Live. Yeah, I mean, there's been so much talk about the men's team and the men's team being in trouble, but the women's team is a completely different outfit they have different management and they have said that they're not in trouble um for this year at least and so it's huge that they were able to do this and i mean it's going to be really cool because there's not a ton of ex-male pros that direct women's teams or that have or that come in to shed insight onto racing from a men's perspective onto a women's team Certainly not of um, Lars's caliber. I know some pro Conti riders um, have come in and directed women's teams, but definitely not someone of yeah that caliber. 
Um, they tend to go towards the men's teams. Um, you just have to look at how many people. Maddie Heyman, I think, is still doing some work for Mitchell and Scott, even though there's there's not much racing. But um, I think it's really great, and maybe more more men will take interest as women's sport continues to grow. That maybe they'll transition into to women's cycling because I think they can bring a completely different perspective to yeah. someone who's just worked in the women's side. Yeah, definitely. And and Lars is coming on as performance manager, but there's also the bulk of today's interview is about directing a women's team, which you have a little bit of experience doing. Yes, um, I probably so 2017 I directed the Rock Salt attacker team in America. Um, they've gone on to be a really, really strong team in Australia uh, with some of Australia's best riders, actually, who decided they didn't want to race in Europe. But, um, yeah, put them in one of the races um, that are down under and they basically give it to the Europeans. But um, I did that and then I did some work with drops um, in 2018 but after that experience, which wasn't very positive, I decided it was probably best to step away from the sport for a while. Um, not to say that in the future I wouldn't like to do something, but it just certainly wasn't the best time. Being a director in and of itself is such a hard job because you have the entire race is on the line. The entire thing is up to you. It's in theory, it's the director's fault if the team loses, if they follow the plan and, and a professional team, you, you follow the plan in theory. And then it's, it's the director's plan that wins, but if the girls execute it, then he, he or she, whoever's directing will put it on them that they won. Um, and just being a director, I mean, I can't imagine how hard it would be. I mean, it's like herding cats for one. Yeah. But also you have to make such tough calls, um, not even like on the road at the race, but also deciding the roster for races. And it doesn't matter how hard someone's trained if they haven't made the cut for a race, for example, and you still have to call them and tell them that. And then when it comes to hiring and, and rehiring and stuff like that, I mean, a director's job is really hard yeah and the other thing is that and which is quite difficult sometimes from uh for riders who transition straight out of the sport into a director's role is you can't be friends with the riders like they're not your friends you have a good relationship um you know you can still have a lot of fun but that was the one thing that I learned um is that you can't be friends with them and that can sometimes be unfortunate, particularly like when Taylor was on drops, you know, she was a good friend, but yeah, where do you draw the line? Um, particularly in team meetings, um, it became difficult at times, but, um, yeah, it's a very rewarding job, but it's difficult. You know, you're the architect, you have this idea of how you, you see a race unfolding. Um, I think if you're a past rider and like, Ina, she's been on, some of the best teams in the world and now she's working with one of the best teams which helps but when you've come from working as a rider on one of the best teams and then going to a slightly lower team your expectations have to change quite dramatically you you're not going in the race to win quite often it's you're going in the race to 
to ensure that you get in the early break and hopefully get maybe a top 10. It's yeah. a very different mentality that I had to learn and, and also not to be so hard on the riders. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I chatted with Ina about a bunch of stuff about this year, about being a director in general, about women's cycling. So here is my chat with Ina. I'm here to chat with Ina Tutenberg, one of the most legendary bike racers of all time, um, about directing and women's cycling, because that's what we talk about on this podcast. So, Ina, hi, how's it going? Hey, how are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me. No worries. Um, so how's just like kind of starting <clears throat> out, we can talk about what's going on right now. So how's it been for you since directing has kind of taken quite a shift the last couple months <laughs> <laughs> as in not being able to do so? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it went through different stages because, you know, once we got sent home from Drenthe, I mean, you went home and you were like, okay, maybe it's about three weeks, four weeks, and then maybe we resume the classics again. So you didn't really think that much about it. Then, I mean, quickly came that countries were locking down and they had lockdowns and all that. And then, you know, a month later, UCI started to say like everything is canceled for a while. So then you were like, okay, so you were standing there. I mean, it was like late March and you're like, who knows when this is going to keep going. So, you know, at the start, I think everybody was fairly relaxed. And it's like, okay, this is like, it's really hard because everybody was ready for like this really intense spring season two Olympic year and all that. So it's always different, you know, so everybody was super ready. And then you all of a sudden it's like, wham, everything is gone. But, you know, Olympics was not canceled yet. So everybody had that still in mind. They took a little rest. But I think like a month into it and all that, like I think you could see like really some people started to like, um, you know, get a little bit more down than others. I mean, especially some who were locked in, which I mean, it's totally understandable. Just to not have like an end point. I think it wasn't the problem of like the season being like having a break, but we didn't have an answer yet. And you know how it is. I mean... We all like to plan and athletes especially. And I mean, they've, you know, they kind of had their form already getting there for like the spring classics. So I think a lot of them kind of fell into this hole, like not knowing what's going to come. Yeah. And I mean, that probably, I think every athlete or like everybody went through different phases. Some were good at a time, then there comes a low point. And I think we all went through it. You know, you were really good. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh man, when is it going to end? And so it's it's been a little bit easier now since we have a point where things are starting and everything. So I think everybody can like shift focus a little bit, work towards a goal. And um, I think that just makes it a lot easier for the athletes to focus. Did your job during quarantine or during the kind of period of time where no one knew what was going on turn a little bit into a therapist role, trying to talk to people and calm them down and... Because you yeah. have a lot of contact with the athletes, obviously, during the season and any and even during the off-season and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's as I say, it, luckily, they all went through phases. I mean, some were super good because some just love to go out and ride their bikes. You know, it doesn't matter if they have a goal or not. So they just went out, did different adventures, did things they couldn't normally do at this time of the uh, year and were, like, super stoked about it. So... 
then, I mean, I think the locked up ones, I mean, they were like, you know, I was really impressed with the people who had to be inside for two months and how focused they were and like how they had their daily plan. And I think that's like, it was easier to like go through the days having such a structured day too. So, but yeah, they went through phases. So you always check in. I mean, you talk and it was more about, you know, not even cycling talk. It was about more about just normal general mental health things, you know, making sure that they're, they're, they're okay. Yeah, definitely. And mental health is becoming more and more of a topic um, these days. And anyway, so now lockdowns are mostly over, pretty much over. The United States is still in a little bit of a question mark. Um, But how is it now kind of planning forward? Because you're you're now planning for camps and getting riders together and stuff. Yeah, I mean, we decided like some other teams, we're doing two camps because it makes more sense to have like a couple of people in Italy who based there anyway, and they're doing some altitude camp with the guys there. And then I take a girl, a group of like girls to bus country because that's where we start racing. And uh, we just go there like a week before or like 10 days before. So just to have a get together. And I think it will be nice to reconnect and like have the girls ride a little bit together yeah, it's still a lot of planning because the medical protocol is like, you know, still have to figure all that out. And um, I think for the woman's side of things, are too, it's it's harder to keep the bubbles alive because we have so, you know, we don't have like the Italian side who can do the Giro or then the, the French side who does the, the tour and then the classics afterwards. We are like, our schedule is all over the place and with the teams are being smaller so I think there has to be a little bit more planning about testing and things like this. And uh, I mean, we're still at it and trying to like figure out the best ways possible and everything. So I think with like cycling, traveling across borders, it's always like, okay, where do you get a test when you're like traveling from one country to the other? It's not your home country. You don't have your home doctor there. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of uh, still things to uh, trying to figure out till we really get going. <laughs> But are you generally optimistic about the season kind of going forward? I mean, now we're almost a month away from what could be the start of racing and how everything's been changing lately. It's been basically a day, day-to-day situation. But as we get closer and there's less cases in Europe, do you think that, do you think that there will be racing? I hope, you know, I'm German, so I'm pessimist, you know, so um, <laughs> I hope so. But I, I think maybe I watched the news too much and all that, because I mean, we just had an outbreak here in the state where I, I grew up in Germany. And it's just like, you know, now the state um, is like one county is in lockdown. These people are not allowed to travel. So I think it's just like it can go really quick the other way around, too. So I, I just hope people are keeping their common sense going and. We'll be smart about the opening stuff and not just cyclists. I mean, the, like everybody. And so we just avoid, you know, infection that much and just like try to get our life going a little bit back to normal with still a couple of restrictions, which are not so bad to like have in your life with wearing a mask in a shop, you know? What do you think of the calendar that we're about to dive into? If racing is, if racing does go forward as planned? Um, yeah, I don't think there was really that much uh, sought into the women's schedule, to be honest, because there's like, it's not a whole lot at the start. And then at some period, there are too many state races at once. So you can't really do all of them. So I mean, there's still enough races for everybody there. But it, it, it will involve quite a lot of travel because then you have Europeans, employee, and it's, it's like a lot of things the UCI um, uh, threw in there where I think sometimes the women teams 
going to have a little bit more struggle figuring out a good schedule there and being healthy and making sure that will happen. I guess that kind of brings me into the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which was um, the changes that are happening right now in women's cycling with within the team structures going from, you know, you're a UCI team or you're not a UCI team. And now there's the world tour teams and, and so on and so forth. And then also the structure of racing is changing and the minimum salaries. Um, it's a lot of change going forward. And do you think that the, the racing this year is going to have much effect on these changes going into next year? Cause we were kind of just diving into having world tour teams and everything. Yeah. I mean, I, I had that question for myself. I don't know if the UCI, um, will like maybe not, uh, move forward with the world tour, like raising the salary again next year. I think that's probably a little bit more to like, yeah, as I say, I haven't talked to anybody at the UCI to just see if some teams like have, have like uh, told them that they might struggle because sponsorship is not so, um, you know, it's like maybe cutting down and all that. So I think we will see what will happen there. I think right now the UCI is probably hoping the schedule happens and working on the schedule. And I think then stuff like this, we, I mean, it was just announced that Worlds is actually happening in Switzerland. So I think by that time, by Worlds and all that, I think we will know a little bit more what it's going to be like, how it's going to affect the team structure and everything for next year. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's like, like I said, everything is just so day to day. It's hard to look too far into the future. Um, and then I have, I was talking to somebody the other day who was like, yeah, for sure the Olympics won't happen next year. And I was like, oh man, can't think that far. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I don't know. It's, it seems like a surreal event if we don't have a vaccine, you know, but like maybe, I mean, I don't know, that's, I mean, it's over a year away. And I mean, maybe by that time, there are so many people had the virus and they have antibodies. So we, I mean, I think it's just so unpredictable not knowing what the virus does and how it's going to spread and how we actually going to handle it. Like, you know, as if it's going to die out or not, it's, I think it's like, there's just so many different informations out there that I think it's hard to really know what it's going to happen. Yeah, definitely. You were racing for years, about 13 years, I read on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and you stopped racing 2014? Uh, 13, yeah. 13, yeah. I stopped, yeah. So it was my last year, 13, yeah. And since then, there's been a lot of changes in women's cycling. What are your thoughts on the changing landscape of women's cycling since you were racing and now being a director? And you do have a little bit more insight into the the goings-on of sport as a director, I feel like, than when you're a rider. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, when I was at the end of my career, you know, there were teams having starting to, like, have mobile homes and, like, small buses were coming along and all that. And, I mean, in the seven years since I retired, I mean, you come to the parking lot now and, like, I mean, every team for sure has a has a mobile home and, like, there are how many buses there. So I think the general level of professionalism has, like, raised, like, a lot in the last seven years. And I think you see it, too. There's, like, a huge amount of, like, you know, really good riders and really good teams. Um, I think uh, the base is getting better and better too, but I think that's where like the minimum salary will like have a big impact too, because we're going to be able with that to like um, work on a wider range, like on a base and like have more girls being totally professional, being able to live off it. 
not having a partner who has to support them or parents. So I think it's like it like in another five, 10 years, it will be a total different landscape, too, because there's just going to be like so much even more professionalism coming. Do you think there's anything to be said for the moving in its own direction, women's cycling as a whole, rather than following the model of the men's? Yeah, I mean, it's always so hard because I don't really know a whole lot. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's hard to really like move in an extremely different way because, I mean, we're still even having same paying agents and same teams and all that. And we still build around the structure of the UCI. So I think it's really hard to really break out of there. And um, a lot of the things I don't really know what what can be done differently because I have not enough knowledge about all these um things i'm still working on that (laughs) is there anything that that was done back in the day that that we don't do anymore that we could still be doing i mean it would be nicer not to have like so many number focused humans around you you know so it's like i mean that would be nice but i mean as i say i think it's always a time and age and then things evolve i mean look now they have to do social media. I mean, I was really happy. I didn't, you know, I, yeah, we started to have Twitter back then, but I would not want to have to do the social media stuff the girls are doing now to promote the team and, and everything. So it's, um, there's always good things to every phase of, uh, of, you know, your sport life or whatever. And then, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of good things about this phase. Yeah. But some things that, uh, it would be nice sometimes without so much technology too. Oh yeah, I I agree. That was actually Kristen Keim and I talked a lot about the impact of numbers and training and mental health. It was so. If anyone yeah, hasn't listened to that episode, you should go yeah. back. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, that's. I mean, I think the whole social media. I mean, we know it gives a lot of burden to a lot of people, and like, I mean, I think it just makes us sick, you know. So, but it's this time in life, and that's. I mean, it's a society problem. It's not a sport problem, you know. So it's just. Sometimes really sad to see if there are 10 people at a table and 10 are all on the phone. It's just like, you know, and I'm, I mean, uh, you can blame myself too. Like I have, I do it at times too. So it's like, it's just sometimes, you know, you, you, you feel like it's like more antisocial than it used to be, but you know, we probably would have been the same if we would have had the access to all the stuff we had. We just didn't. Do you have any like director rules that are like, no, no TikTok on the team van before the team bus an hour before the race no i mean they can do whatever they want to do there they're all professional <laughs> they're adults you know so i do try to uh uh treat them like adults and not uh, treat them like their mom well i think one of my most favorite rules we had on uhc was no phones at the dinner table i think that is a good rule and i think that should be implemented um we haven't done that but i think uh, it's uh, for sure a good rule yeah <laughs> yeah so what does your day-to-day kind of look like as a director? Like the, say like a regular day at home versus a race day. Um, I mean, that depends on like what time of the year it is too. Like, I mean, in the winter you do more like, I mean, you're waiting for the UCI to bring out the schedule. Then you're trying to like figure out what the best race plan will be for the team. And then you're trying to like work on the individual schedule for the girls. And I mean, you have a camp and then, get more talking about that and I mean once the racing starts I mean you have all that other stuff in place already I mean except somebody crashes or gets sick you rearrange a little bit but I mean that's not really that big of a problem 
yeah, I mean, you just prepare for the races, prepare for the stages. You try to like be organized so the girls have all the, you know, the information they need and, um, you know, uh, come up with good plans and make sure you know the routes and uh, who else is racing is going to be competitive. And a lot of times when it's a long trip, I mean, the first couple of days you go home, you just rest. You just have to kind of, I try to actually limit my access to uh, phone and computer because you need a couple of days off. And then, I mean, you just go from there, prepare for the next race and, um, you know, see what's coming. And I think it gets, I think the longer the, you do the job, it probably gets a little bit easier because you do the races over and over and a lot of them are the same. So I think this prepar- like certain preparations, I mean, they're getting a little less. It's not that you you don't have to prepare. You still do course recon for the uh, classics and all that. But like, it's it's more repeating thing and just a refresher. So then you still know more. So I think, um, you know, it will get easier the, the longer you do the job. When did you decide you wanted to be a director? Uh, I mean, I tried it before and, um, you know, it was pretty hard to find a full-time job in, in women's cycling because, I mean, most teams, they have one or one, like, then they need only half a director. And then for me, it was always like, do I come just for, like, a little bit over to Europe for that? That's not really worth it. So, you know, when USA Cycling, I mean, it was nice. It was a nice experience to work with all the different groups and all that and everything, but it was was just not enough. So, I, and then you still traveled a lot, but then I couldn't really build anything up in uh, California. So, you know, at the in like mid 16, I decided, oh, I just do something else. And then I did. I mean, I went to massage school and everything and then um, just did a little bit on the side doing that stuff. And, you know, I was ready to like, just start my business and everything over there when track called. So I was actually pretty much done with the whole thing and just trying to figure out my life there. But, you know, this project sounded too exciting that I could... Um, pass on the chance I was I mean first time that there somebody offered me a full-time thing it was a lot because it's a lot of responsibility and I've never like ran a full-time program and pro- especially not at this level so um you know it was it was a big learning curve last year and how is it working for track because they're they're known as one of the top teams in the world and I mean I know personally that it's one of the most organized and one of the teams that treats their riders the best yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, they all welcomed us with, with open arms and like wherever I needed help, I got help and I could ask questions and learn the way about the organizations and all that stuff. So it was like, for sure, they made us all feel welcome and for sure we're really, really helpful. There were still a lot of things I, like I wasn't used to, you know, the, the, the procedures they have and all that. So, but it was just kind of a, like a learning way. And then as I say, it gets more and more automatic the longer the, the season was on. So all that stuff like wasn't that like it wasn't complicated to start with but there was a lot of things you had to remember um they would like you to do too and all that so but you know you could always call somebody up and ask and uh, i mean the support they give us like on the road with the girls like getting uh like best treatment and all that so you know like yeah it's it's for sure a really good uh company to work for and i guess my final question is how was pre-riding perry roubaix <laughs> It was nice. I mean, it was fun. I mean, I've always dreamt of uh, racing that race. I, I've done a couple of sectors of Paris-Roubaix. Like, we did it at one Tour de France one year. And I did decide, actually, to see back then, too. Um, 
But uh, I mean, it was great. I mean, Stephen de Jong came out with us, and then uh, you know, I had just limited riders just because of Corona. We we weren't even sure if we would make it to Paris, so it was great just doing some testing in Armberg. So like Lucinda and Ellen, they could figure out, you know, the best bike, the best wheels, and all that. And then you know, we did just pretty much 50k motor, like or nearly race speed behind uh, Stephen de Jong riding over the couples. So I think we got a good. Uh, feel for it so it was nice i mean it was just like first of all it was extremely exciting after being pretty much in your own county for like three months and then you like left and it's like oh my god we're going over borders so <laughs> it was cool i mean uh, we we just you know we tested in armberg and then we just rode 50k on the man's course so we, d we didn't have a clue where we actually go and all that but it was just fun like experience some of these couples and they're for sure way rougher than um I expected. <laughs> so that's going to be, do you think that race is going to be a highlight of this season? I think for like, you know, I mean, yes. And no, I mean, like, you know, we have Liege, we have all the other, like a lot of other big classics and they are still going to be super important, but I think it's going to be a little bit extra level of excitement. I mean, Roubaix, it's just always spectacular. I mean, you watch that on TV and it's like, it's, I think it's so spectacular because it's the most unpredictable race ever, you know? So, mm -hmm. and, and I think because of that, everybody's going to be super anxious and never ridden these classics, you know, end of October, it's probably going to be shitty weather. So I, I think it's going to be a little bit extra excitement going around that race for sure. Awesome. So. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, no it was worries. really great to chat with you. Yeah.